Thank you, TJ. Good morning. You know, I love uh, rides like roller coasters and things that jerk you around and you never know what's coming next. At Disneyland, I love the uh, teacups. Things that go fast, make you dizzy, spin you around, shake you up, make you laugh. You know, <laughs> I love that stuff. Um, but these days, those kinds of rides make me think of this coronavirus in my life right now. And I'm getting a little weary of it. I got to tell you, sometimes I'm tired of it uh, just going on and on and shaking me up and turning me around and upside down and keeping me on my toes. I read this week a line which has meant a lot to me. You don't know a story is happening. You don't know a story is happening to you when you're in it. And if anything, others know it before we are aware of it. Others know it if there's a story at all. And that brings me to Mordecai. When I think of Mordecai, whose name is mentioned more than any other character in the book of Esther, when I think of Mordecai, I asked myself this week, did he think that he was in a story? And yet, this story means so much to us. It reveals so much about God. And it gives us insight into ourselves. And we realize that even though he didn't know he was in a story, he was in a story. It helps me to navigate, to deal with the herks and jerks of my life right now, to think I'm in a story. What's happening to me is part of a story. When I think of Mordecai, and I think of a story, Mordecai was a tree in a story about a forest. The story of the forest is the bigger story. If we celebrate Esther, if we celebrate Mordecai, it's because they belong to a story about a forest, not a story about a tree. Each of us is a tree in a story about a forest. And if I were to personalize this, just to, I hope, give you some perspective, maybe the lens being my life, the forest of my marriage, it's the story of a duo, the forest of my family, it's the story of a legacy, uh, the forest of our church staff. It's not the story of me. It's the story of a team. The forest of our church family. It's not the story of me or you. It's the story of God's new people. If I make the story about me, it's not the better story. And this, this may be where you'll have to think about this some more. Maybe you'll tangle with me a little bit on that. Maybe 
Your story is the big story to you, the most important story, the better story, therefore. But with a little age and life under your belt, a little perspective, even on your own life, you'll come to recognize the story about me, the story about you is not really the better story. That's an autobiography that no one will publish. The better story is not about you or me, it's about us. And that's a story that God is writing. And we become characters in the story God is writing through Jesus Christ. We become a character, an important character, but not the story, but an, an important character in a better story. That is God's story. And that brings us to Mordecai. If Mordecai is celebrated, it's because the story of the forest is the more important story, the better story. It's a story of triumph. Don't miss that. Haman's story is the story of a tree, and it's a story of tragedy. Don't miss that. Haman is to pride what Mordecai is to humility. We worship and serve the one true God who favors humility. I don't know of any story or any book that makes a greater point of and gives a greater role to humility than the story of God and its hero, Jesus, embodies that humility. Millions may admire Jesus, but Jesus requires humility to follow him. We worship and serve the one true God who favors humility. In Isaiah 57, 15, the, the Lord says, the Lord who is high and lofty, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy places and also with him or her who has a contrite and humble spirit. Or Isaiah 66, verse 2. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things are mine. But this is the man to whom I will look, he that is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34 the Lord opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Jesus held a child up to those who were gathered about him, followers. The interest, the interested, the admirers, he held up a little child and he said, be as humble as this child 
and you'll be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Humility has a major role in the story of God. And we are a part of that story. For that story to be all that it's supposed to be, we need to put on humility. We need to be a people of humility. For the people of humility are close to God. The people of humility are the people who depend upon God. The people of humility are the people who look to God and listen to God and follow God in Jesus Christ. It's interesting that in these verses, and we could cite more until you started crying, quit. The word for humility is low, whether it's Hebrew or Greek, low. Get low to get high. Yeah, I never tried that when I was younger. Get low before the Lord to get high before the Lord. But maybe it's a little easier to just get low. I really enjoyed Steve uh, Martin when, when he came on the scene. He was hilarious, had his records, went to see him at Berkeley Community Theater. I literally rolled in the aisle, cradling my stomach. It was so painful, I was laughing so hard I couldn't catch my breath. He used to talk about getting small. He'd say, get small. I've kind of adopted that in life. It's been a helpful reminder. When things seem so overwhelming, get small in the Lord. Get your focus down on your life and what God can do through you and through you among those around you. Get small, get low. Get tiny before the Lord, depend on him, look to him, lean on him, trust in him, count on him. Give all those big things that only he can control, give them over to him. It doesn't mean that you become idle or inactive. It means that we get involved where we're at, where our feet are placed, where our eyes can look, where our hands can touch, where our voice can travel. It's the things that are real in our lives that we can have a real impact upon and make a real difference. And that's when we are a part of a forest, which is a bigger and more important and much better story. We're not talking about acting humble. We're talking about knowing we're humble, knowing that we're low, knowing that we're not all that, that we're not such hot stuff. And the measuring stick or the proportion for who we are in reality, in the grand scheme of things, is who we are before the Lord. He lifts us up. He gives us importance. He gives us the privilege of being called his child. He becomes focused on working through us as we are meek and mild and humble before him and available to him and open to him. 
that he can work through us. Not around us, but through us. And I do think when we're full of pride or full of ourselves or God is nowhere in our thoughts and his presence, as we prayed, is real, but we're not mindful, it's then that God has to work around us instead of through us. We can become an actual obstacle to the Lord's work rather than a vehicle of his work. Good stories contain memorable scenes. What do Mordecai's scenes show us? I mean, if the book of Esther was a movie, Mordecai would have scenes. And he has scenes in the book of Esther. What do we see in Mordecai when he's on stage, as it were? When he's playing his part or the camera focuses on his life? Well, I want us to look at three themes of his scenes. First, like Mordecai, humility is loyal and dutiful. Just as Haman was somewhat interchangeable with the word prideful or pride, Mordecai we can use in an interchangeable way with humility. And the first scene that we focus on is Mordecai's loyalty. He's loyal and dutiful. We see a good example of this at the end of chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. Mordecai is again and ever sitting at the king's gate. Eleven times in the book of Esther, we're told, and Mordecai was seated at the, at the king's gate. What's that tell us? He's reliable. In fact, in chapter 5, verse 13, Haman's irritated, of course, He's just set eyes on Mordecai again, and he says, every time I see him at the king's gate, he's always at the king's gate. Where's Mordecai? He's at the king's gate. In fact, the king in chapter 6, verse 10, says, okay, Mordecai, remember the king had had a, he was sleepless, he asked someone to read from the state records or chronicles, and the reader came across the account that recorded the fact that Mordecai had saved the king's life by foiling a plot to assassinate him. It was recorded in the annals, and so it's read to the king, and he says, did I ever do anything for Mordecai? And the servant says, no, your Lord, you did not. And he says, what shall I do for the man that I want to honor? And about that time, Mordecai, uh, Haman is in the court. He's there to ask the king permission to hang Mordecai. And the king calls Haman in and he says, Haman, I need your help. I want to know what I should do for the man that I want, I desire to honor. Haman thinks that the king's talking about him, so he begins to roll out what he would do. And he says, well, I would treat him like a king. 
And the king says, splendid idea, Haman. I want you to do exactly that for Mordecai. And you know what? I know right where Mordecai is at. He's at the king's gate. You can find him there. Check it out. Read it in chapter 6, verse 10. The king knows where Mordecai is. He's at the gate. Mordecai is reliable. He's where he's expected to be. And we see that in verse 21. He's where he's expected to be, but he also seems to be at the right place in the right time because he's where he's supposed to be. And he's not just there geographically, I don't think. At least I think we can expand our application to realize that when a person is reliable, when, he's, when a person is loyal and dutiful, that person God can use because that person is not only ge geographically where they ought to be, but they're spiritually and emotionally where they ought to be. And that's true of Mordecai. Mordecai's not trying to be something he's not, which makes him available to the Lord right where he's at. Mordecai saves the king's life, as I mentioned, and there's some interesting application there. He does the right thing. The king's politics do not affect Mordecai's judgment. I think that's a really important point. In other words, politics do not influence his morality. It's not whether the king is worthy or not. Mordecai saves the king's life. I think there's something there for us to think about, ponder, and learn. Mordecai's not trying, as I said, to be something he's not. The, the pure decency of Mordecai and the deed that he does is duly and officially noted in the king's presence and in the records of the state. That becomes important in what we see as the unfolding of God's plan. Sometimes decency and doing the right thing, regardless of our affiliations, our greater affiliation to the Lord is something that he can use in ways that sometimes we take out of his hands because we're involved in other allegiances, alliances, and affiliations. Humility is not like that. Not the humility that we're highlighting here. Not the humility that plays such a major role in God's work, in his own creation, in his own world, with his own people, through his own, ultimately, through his own hero. And through all those who follow his hero, Jesus Christ. Humility. And after Mordecai does the right thing and saves the king's life, what happens? What happens next? Life goes on. C'est la vie. Such is life. Mordecai is not honored. No, the next verse we read, Haman is elevated to the highest seat in the realm next to the king himself. And we're, thought, we're thinking, what a ripoff. Nothing for Mordecai. 
who merits much more, everything for Haman, who we think, what did he do to merit such a high honor? But yet, no, life goes on. Mordecai goes on. We don't read a word about Mordecai becoming bitter or embittered or growing bitter. He's not upset. Not that he shows, not that he says, not that he acts out in any way. There's something to be learned from that, from humility. From humility that, as the story goes on, gives things over to God, trusts God for our reward or for our, our vindication. I'll tell you, you've got to live and learn that in ministry. I would imagine it's true in your marriages, in rearing your children, with your relatives, in school, at work, because we're always not going to get a fair shake, not going to get what we thought we had coming, and sometimes get stuff that we didn't deserve at all. What are you going to do with it? Is it going to affect our lives? Is it going to derail our lives? It does for a period of time. Sometimes we become unserviceable to the Lord. It's like we check out. And what have we missed? Or what have we complicated and embroiled in ways that could have been improved if we hadn't been so wrapped up in ourselves. You see, humility trusts the Lord, trusts our vindication or our vengeance, as the case may be, unto the Lord. It was he who said, vengeance is mine. Don't think for the Lord. Let's not seek what we think is best for the Lord. Learn to love the results of obedience. Do what's right, parade or not, and content ourselves in trusting our woes to the Lord, and then move on to the next good that he has for us. I remember in 1994, and it had already been in play a few months, I was prompted, I felt the prompting of the Lord. It was, a, it was an, about an 18-month struggle for me. You know, it was just a cloud in my sky because I loved the church that I'd been pastoring for 10 years. Shelley and I, we left everything to go to South San Francisco and serve there for those 10 years, and I'd served joyfully and without regrets, really, and now I felt the Lord was prompting me to go, and in some senses I hadn't achieved all that I'd hoped or thought the Lord had for me to achieve. But I really did believe it was his prompting, and I wrestled with him over it in prayer. I remember as I began to respond to that prompting, I sought out some references, some experts. Uh, I kind of, I don't know if you'd call it a fleece, or I kind of floated my resume for church or school uh, teaching or pastoring in different places. I met with one leader. He said, well, if you haven't grown a 
church from 100 to 1,000, no one's going to be interested in you. And I remember driving home from that meeting, which was over the hill from South City in Pacifica, and, you know, I wanted to be respectful to the Lord, but he knew my attitude. I was, I was pretty upset. And I was saying things like, so, Lord, I, I, I followed you faithfully. I've given up all this stuff, and now I'm unhirable. <laughs> I'm not job-worthy. I've run myself into the ground. But it was a little less than a few months later, I found, uh, we went ahead and we pursued God's plan. I, we moved to the Central Valley and because uh, we really felt that was best for us and best for the church and the future of the church in particular. And within two weeks of moving, I was flying up to Portland, Oregon as a part of the president of Western Seminary's leadership team. And the kicker for me is that as a grad student, I had admired and felt kind of like, oh, why couldn't I go away to a school like that? And here I was now sitting on the president's board of a school like of that very school. So my point is, are we willing to wait on the Lord and trust our vindication to him? Can we let go of hurts or can we settle for whatever reward there is? and give thanks, and be grateful, and move on, and be used of God, and express the joy of the Lord in our lives if it doesn't always fall out the way we think it should? And can we trust him to take care of us? And what I'm trying to tell you in my story is I could give you a number of real head-turning accounts like that where you just don't see it coming. But this book, the book of Esther, is a book of reversals. And that is what our God is all about. Well, humility, like Mordecai, is loyal and dutiful, but it's also principled and predictable. In chapter 4, verses 14 through 17, I think it's fascinating that Mordecai calls Esther to do the right thing, even at the peril of her life. This is, this is his cousin, whom we assume is a, a bit younger, at least, the young woman whom he, we are told, has reared like his own daughter. Some of us have trouble watching our, our sons or our daughters go off to college. What's it like to put them in harm's way, to ask them to risk their lives for something? I'll tell you, it's only possible if you're humble because the humble person is committed to things that are truer and bigger and greater than ourselves. You've got to live for things that are bigger than your own ideas and aspirations, unless our ambitions are shaped and formed by those much greater and higher things. God is one of those. And Mordecai's people was another. And in the grand scheme, Mordecai could ask something that I'm sure he would prefer to ask of himself. But 
Esther was in that strategic position. And he raised her for such a time as this. The scene in Mordecai's life tells something very important. As I said, that Mordecai believes in greater things. But out of his commitment and conviction to those greater things, Mordecai is courageous in ways that he would not have courage on his own. Courageous people won't bite, but they won't bend either. They endure and they stand up to difficulties. They don't always have to showcase their courage. And they often look to the outsider or the uninformed weaker than they really are. But don't test their mettle. They won't bend and they won't break. They won't bite, but they won't cave. Therefore, Mordecai's predictable. He's not a slave to his feelings, his moods, or convenience. He's a predictable person. And a predictable person is a trustworthy person, a person of conviction. Mordecai is a contrast to Xerxes the king. I mean, if you line up their profiles, you see how black and white day and night they are. We'll see a little bit more of that when we look at the king, Lord willing, next Sunday. But now that we look at Mordecai, we realize that unlike the king, who is an unpredictable sovereign, who is a capricious, arbitrary, a guy bases his life on random choice, personal whim, sudden and unaccountable changes of mood or behavior. Someone changes like that frequently. Mordecai's not like that at all. Why? Because he's principled. Sometimes we say we believe in the word. Sometimes we say, ah, my faith is in Jesus Christ. And that gives us a confidence that we're saved. But when we look at your life, that's the true test. Are we predictable? Are we trustworthy? Do we reflect as we aspire to inspire Christ-likeness? I never knew how God could use me in a leader's role because I wasn't bold. I didn't have swagger. My pastor said, you're going to have to get tough. One of the great days of my, of my adult life is, is when uh, he was right here at Grace and one day by the store he stopped me. I don't think he remembered that he had told me, you're going to have to get tough. You know, he didn't, he didn't go on to say, you're a wimp, but that was implied. And he said to me, you know, you're tough. And that was important to me because I never thought I could be a him or of the cut or cloth of many of the other leaders that I had served under who always seemed to have a bigger-than-life presence and a power that was over, sometimes overwhelming. But if you're principled, if you're principled, you are a strong leader in your home, among your friends, 
to your neighbors, to onlookers. You're a dependable quality. You're a person of character. And you're teaching wherever you go. Your life is a book that other people read. And it attests to the story of God. Humility, like Mordecai, is trusted and inspiring. Loyal, dutiful, principled and predictable, but trusted and inspiring. In chapter 4, 17 and 14, uh, chapter 8, 1 through 10, chapter 8, verse 15 and others, we see something that is to me most impressive. We see Mordecai in Esther. And that's a big deal. We see Mordecai's humility in Esther. He inspires her trust. She counts on him. She becomes like him. He's reflected in Esther. You know, she she obeys Mordecai. But when she steps up into the same sense of conviction and principle of those greater things that Mordecai is a part of. He starts taking orders from Esther. You see, humility isn't about who's giving the orders. It's about what's right and wrong. And if people are humble and committed to the same God and follow the same Jesus, they follow in unity. It's not a tussle as to who gets credit. It's about doing the right thing. It's about being principled. It's about getting the job done. And we all get a certain credit together and we all rejoice together because what we're really cheering on is the story of God. We're cheering about the forest and not a tree. Mordecai's a quiet hero who inspires faith in Esther. And it's a beautiful thing how she gives Mordecai credit. She tells the king who Mordecai is to her. She tells the king that Mordecai is the one who saved her life. The king gives her Haman's estate and she turns it over to Mordecai. Because all the beautiful things of God's story are shared alike. And she loves Mordecai. And she wants to share all the best with him. And humble people are like that. They energize the people around them. They award them. They give honor to them. They give grace to them. Joy to them. All the fruit of the Spirit. It's a beautiful thing to be humble. Go low to get high. Go low before God to get high before God. Let him lift you. And if you're humble, you'll lift everybody with you. God bless you. Make it a great day. Live for the Lord. Trust him. Expect great things from God. Walk in the power of his spirit. We love you. Mm, big hug. Mwah.